This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. How serious are the claims that a former president of the United States took highly sensitive classified material to his home post-presidency, whereupon his attorneys incorrectly stated that the former president had, earlier this year, given back all of the relevant documents? Following the FBI search of the former president's home, the agency came away with numerous boxes of materials. Julian Sanchez, a founding editor at Just Security and Cato Institute senior fellow Patrick Eddington, offered their thoughts. Pat, let me start with you. You know your way around the system that governs uh, secrecy in federal government documents. What is your general assessment based upon what you know of this chronology that has rolled out between the federal government, the uh, National Archives, and uh, the Trump administration. In a blog post that I wrote about uh, this little episode, um, the afternoon that the the Mar-a-Lago search warrant, the FBI's Mar-a-Lago search warrant was unsealed, I used the phrase purloined documents um, to describe this rather than using the, the word steal. Um, you know, this just doesn't, in in a normal administration, and I think we have to, we have to kind of you know put that that uh, caveat out there. In a normal administration, this just wouldn't happen. Um, this kind of material, um, you know, particularly material uh, that has the designator of uh, sensitive compartmented information, this generally applies to signal intelligence coming out of the National Security Agency. Although it can apply to other uh, baskets, uh, of, of highly sensitive information as well. Um, that stuff is, is normally kept under, uh, lock and key in one fashion or another. It may be a digital lock and key, uh, or it could be a physical lock and key in a, in a safe inside of what's known as a special compartmented information facility or SCIF. But, uh, the notion here, um, that this is all just some kind of big misunderstanding or this ludicrous notion that somehow, President Trump uh, magically waved his hand uh, every time some of this stuff was moved from the Oval Office or the Situation Room to the residence, and it was magically declassified by that. That just isn't how the system works. Um, There has to be, in essence, some kind of documentation showing that the president took a specific action. And I'll just give one example. You know, during Clinton's administration, um, he issued a specific executive order that declassified almost uh, 50 million pages of material uh, from basically the World War II era up through a lot of the Cold War in Vietnam. And that was done through a process. Uh, and there was clearly no process here whatsoever other than basically putting documents uh, in boxes and, uh, and taking them with him. So uh, very, very, very serious matter, to say the least. All right. So in terms of the chronology, I know that uh, federal law enforcement, they like their procedures and uh, they followed a pretty specific set of procedures here to make contact with uh, former President Trump and make contact with his attorneys to say, hey, we got there's some there's some problems here that we would like to get cleared up sooner than later. Of course, the saga starts, you know, with Trump leaving office uh, in January of 2021. And a year later, the National Archives is still trying to get uh, information uh, out of him that he had taken with him, documents that he had taken with him. Um, and that led essentially in June of 2022 
to FBI agents making an unannounced, at least not publicly announced visit uh, to Mar-a-Lago, Mr. Trump's residence in Florida, to obtain some of these documents. Uh, And they also got a signed statement from one of Trump's lawyers that apparently said, you know, that's it. We're all done here. We have nothing else. And sometime, it appears at least between June and August of 2022, according to the existing published reports out there, the FBI learned uh, from what appears to be a confidential source that boxes of classified records were still at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, so they made the decision during that period of time, obviously, to intensify the investigation and ultimately to go before that magistrate judge, get the search warrant and execute the search and seizure, which they did uh, on August 11th. Um, so that that's literally, you know, kind of the chronology there. Um, and it's in terms of how they handle things from an investigative standpoint. Um, it very much tracks essentially with how a lot of other investigations involving people who have taken classified material who were not president of the United States uh, and ultimately have gone to jail for it. And there, there have actually been a lot of those. Shockingly, there have actually been a lot of those cases over the course of the last 10 years or so. Julian, how do you uh, evaluate the defenses that have been offered by, uh, you know, people who have have been in the past under uh, the former president? Trump's employ, people who are, uh, I guess, merely advocates or ideological advocates and uh, others who have some familiarity with uh, how this system works. Um, you know, we've heard a, a, a range of defenses, uh, often often uh, mutually exclusive defenses. Um, so, you know, well, maybe this stuff was planted, but also I declassified the stuff they planted is not uh, a, a coherent combination of things to say. Um, so let's let's leave aside, you know, ideas like maybe they planted stuff, um, which you know, I mean, you know, I suppose it might not be the first time, but um, there's no evidence of that. So let's let's leave that to the side. Um, so one of the things we've heard is, well, the president has uh, plenary declassification authority, which is true, and maybe he declassified uh, some of the information before leaving office. So a couple. A couple issues here. Um, so one is you would want some kind of contemporaneous evidence. Um, there was a case that that came before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals just a, a couple of years ago um, concerning whether President Trump had, in the course of tweeting about uh, certain CIA programs, effectively declassified uh, the information. Uh, this is the New York Times was seeking via FOIA request uh, to obtain document to to obtain documents and they had gotten a Glomar response saying effectively, we cannot even tell you whether or not we have documents concerning the thing uh, you're referencing. And they said, well, but Trump tweeted about it. So um, that information is now sort of out in the, in the public domain. And the second circuit said, no, look, there's a declassification process. Um, I, you know, there are some people who have suggested that just, it's like a mental act that he can like telepathically, um, declassify stuff or like whisper over it and it's magically declassified. Um, you know, what the courts have said about this to date suggests to me that that is uh, not uh, likely to be very persuasive to many judges and, um, you know, would of course be an insane way to do things because the rest of the government needs to know, you know, it's one thing to say the president controls is the original classifying authority. And so if he wants to do it in a different way from, you know, some formal process where he wants to rescind, uh, you know, what what executive orders lay out as the normal process, he can do that. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean, you know, he doesn't have to make the rest of the government aware of what the status of the uh, of the data is. Um, 
So that's that's one uh, issue, you know, with some kind of specificity. Um, the second problem is if you look at the the warrant, it cites three federal statutes, three provisions of federal law, 18 U.S.C. 793. That's the, the Espionage Act, effectively, uh, and also 18 U.S.C. 1519 uh, and 2071. Um, 793, the Espionage Act involves essentially gathering, transmitting, losing um, or improperly retaining defense information. Um, 1519 is about destruction, alteration, or falsification of federal records. And 2071 is about the concealment, removal, or mutilation uh, of, of such records. Um, none of these statutes actually refer directly to classification. The Espionage Act predates the modern classification system. What it talks about is defense information. So in a sense, something that would be very important to a court in determining whether um, those statutes were applicable to a particular document is, well, is it classified as top secret? That would be a, a strong indication. Um, but uh, technically, that's not what the statute requires. Um, and the third issue is, of course, you know, Donald Trump lost his authority to control classification the day he left office. So, you know, if these are documents that he, even if, uh, suppose he did, uh, you know, wave his hands over them and say these are declassified and uh, maybe even some people overheard him. Um, well, the day he's out, if the Biden administration, you know, looks at some of this stuff and says, well, no, that's not appropriate. This stuff ought to be classified. Well, then it's classified again. And if you look at, you know, what the statute talks about, um, it does, you know, a lot, a lot, you know, for a lot of those provisions, they do require willfulness or knowingness. So, um, if he had declassified something, removed it, and then it were reclassified, um, you know, certainly you could say, well, he wouldn't have the requisite state of mind when removing it. Um, but they also talk about retention. Essentially, one of the one of the kind of predicate uh, offenses you commit is not returning it to an authorized person within the government when you are asked to. Um, so, uh, I think I think. Even if that were the case, you would have a potential problem for uh, for the former president. Pat, a lot of this is, you know, we try not to engage in too much schadenfreude here uh, on the Cater Daily podcast, but it is at least a bit rich for uh, this former president to uh, have have clearly done this, that is, remove these documents and uh, we'll will be cleared up soon whether or not they in fact were classified uh at the time of removal and uh uh beyond that but uh this particular president was very tough on people who were leakers he complained yes. vociferously about people who were engaged in uh similar types of behavior yes and and i think one of the other things here that i find um potentially intriguing uh, is directly related to that first FBI visit in June of 2022, because another potential charge that this president and those around him who are involved in this may face is 18 U.S. Code 1001, which is the perjury statute. Um, because according to the existing published reports about that June uh, FBI visit, a document was signed stating that, that that was it. There was nothing else there uh, they were done, uh, nothing else that belonged to the people of the United States through the National Archives, uh, was there. Um, that's, that's a huge problem because that's one of the easiest ones, quite frankly, for DOJ to win on. 
uh, are false statements. I mean, they wind up getting an awful lot of people on just, you know, basic false statement type stuff. But I don't think there's, you know, any question that that the that this president, this entire administration broke so many norms and in this case may have broken so many laws that it really does call into question in some respects whether the existing uh, framework that we use for, you know, trying to protect this kind of information, both classify it and declassify it, you know, really needs to be, um, you know, put in a much more formalized statutory framework. Uh, the existing executive order that kind of generally governs this stuff is executive order uh, 13526, uh, which has been around in one form or another for, for decades at this point in time. But it is just that. It's an executive order. Um, and we have, you know, plenty of uh, of other examples of statutes that have been enacted in order to kind of govern the de- the, de- the declassification uh, of uh, of material. Um, among those, of course, uh, is the Freedom of Information Act itself, which has an entire framework set up, you know, for doing that. But there have been other examples over the course of the last five decades where specific statutes have been passed in order to facilitate the declassification of documents in mass. I mentioned you know, what President Clinton did previously. Also during the Clinton administration, you had the Nazi and Imperial Japanese war crimes records uh, that were declassified in mass and so on and so forth. So it all goes to this idea that for decades, we have had processes and procedures in place for handling this kind of stuff. And all of that was clearly disregarded by this president. Now, a lot of folks are going are, are asking, you know, why did he do this? Um, some of the, the, uh, explanations that have been offered is that he wanted to basically be able to frame some of these things and put them up at Mar-a-Lago and show how all the cool stuff that he had. Um, I find that one, frankly, to be extremely plausible. I, I find that explanation to be extremely plausible. And there are others who are suggesting that maybe there is a darker motive there that, that because of Mr. Trump's financial problems, that perhaps he saw these documents as a way to perhaps get himself out of that. I'm not passing judgment on that, uh, and I'm not even necessarily suggesting that. But the fact that a lot of people are suggesting that kind of kind of gets it. I think the overall problem that we have here, which is we need to get to a place where we have a real framework where it is clear that any president uh, is required. And the PRA, the Presidential Records Act, of course, which was passed in 1978, does make this very clear um, that you just simply can't walk off of these documents without there being some consequences. And I think in that regard, you know, Merrick Garland, who obviously has been under, you know, tremendous pressure from folks on the left, uh, you know, to go after Mr. Trump for a variety of reasons, he, he's now got a lot of, you know, decisions to make. So in addition to what we have seen with respect to the documents that Mr. Trump made off with down to Mar-a-Lago. We have, of course, the ongoing January 6th committee, uh, select committee hearings looking into the events surrounding the insurrection, which also have now implicated document destruction uh, uh, in the January 5, 6, uh, 2021 time period involving the Secret Service, the Department of Defense, and others. So, you know, whether any of this is necessarily related to what Mr. Trump did or what Mr. Trump did was simply for his own vanity and other purposes, it's going to take some time for that to shake out. But this episode is deeply disturbing and everyone should be really concerned about it. And just on one quick final note here for, for, uh, for this particular point, I do think that, you know, and, and I take a backseat to no one as a critic of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but 
this incident in Cincinnati, where this individual attempted to breach the FBI's field office there, uh, and then subsequently got into a gun battle away from the facility later on, which resulted in that individual's death. I think that it's incumbent upon every single person who is in a position of authority in government, whether it is in the executive branch or the legislative branch, to make it absolutely clear that that kind of conduct is absolutely beyond the pale, completely unacceptable, needs to be condemned, and needs to be thwarted uh, at every opportunity. Um, I want to see the FBI reformed. I don't want to see dead FBI agents on the street as a result of this kind of insanity. Julian, you have one more uh, defense that uh, has been offered? So one more defense that's been offered, uh, I'm more sympathetic to in principle, um, although I don't know how well it applies to the facts of this specific case. One thing I've heard, we've heard this including from members of Congress is look, um, we do have rampant overclassification. There's a lot of material that's classified that is not in fact plausibly information that would do any harm to to national security, let alone, you know, severe harm um, that, Often stuff remains formally classified even long after it's become published, after it's been widely discussed in the press. Um, So you might have, you know, information in the New York Times that's technically classified. Um, And that's true. I think even within the intelligence uh, community, people will acknowledge there is a problem with overclassification because no one really ever got in trouble for classifying too much information. If you uh, whereas if you fail to protect information. Um, you know, you're you're likely to face consequences for that. And so that system of incentive leads to enormous overclassification. Um, and so that's certainly true as a general statement about our classification system. I will say it's a lot more true at the lower level. So if you talk about confidential level or secret level stuff, lots of stuff that's classified at that level, you look at and you go, you know, this doesn't, I don't see why, um, and, and I don't see any really good argument that this ought to, this needs to be classified, that people need to be prevented from knowing this, um, when that's the, I think generally the premise of a democratic government ought to operate, that citizens should be able to know how it's operating, um, um, because there's some dire national security consequence. I think it tends to be less true when you get to top secret and, and, uh, sensitive compartmentalized information, although you will find cases there too, where, um, you know, I think you might say this seems more like it's secret because it might be embarrassing than um, because it would do harm. Um, but, you know, you're getting there into areas more of sort of policy dispute rather than, you know, this clearly seems inappropriate. Um, that said, I think most people think if it's you know, stuff that concerns nuclear secrets is uh, stuff I think we're all pretty generally comfortable uh, being protected. And so you could say in general, yeah, it's the case that uh, – there is overclassification. And the question is, all right, when we're talking about especially the the highest levels of documents here um, that were retained, are those things that are improperly classified or that it would be uh, fine to declassify? Uh, well, we don't know that yet. Um, I suppose it might be the case, but I, you know, we don't have information that would suggest that, well, um, you know, these are the kind of nuclear secrets that, that is not problematic to release. Um, but, you know, perhaps this is unfortunately the, the 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 kind of thing that is certainly relevant, but that we may ultimately never know. Uh, I want to raise one point and I don't want to dwell on this, but I, I, I do want to get to it. One of the defenses, it's not really a defense, I suppose, uh, but it is uh, one that we that I've heard uh, a lot in the last few days, which is uh, David Petraeus and Hillary Clinton. Uh, among a few others, I suppose, were not 
uh, subjected to uh, this kind of scrutiny, it appears, uh, for activity that you could describe as similar? Well, I, I think um, that that statement would probably be more true with respect to Petraeus in that regard. Um, you know, giving extremely classified material to your mistress so she can write a hagiographic book about you um, definitely should have uh, resulted, in my judgment, in his court-martial. Um, because I, and, and as a former army officer myself, I believe that people in positions of authority should be held to a much higher standard, uh, than private Joe Snuffy, right? Um, you know, that being said, I don't think there's any question that over the years we have seen essentially kind of a, a semi two-tiered system for how these, these things get done. You know, when Sandy Berger, uh, went repeatedly to the National Archives to smuggle out documents that were, uh, embarrassing to the Clinton administration about their counterterrorism policy or their in their his failures. pants, I believe in his pants. Uh, it was socks, actually. Uh, that, my apologies. So socks. all you have to all you have to do is just kind of do Sandy Berger socks on Google, and it'll come up immediately. But uh, yeah, um, you know, he got off pretty light, didn't do any jail time, all the rest of that. So I I understand, and and you know, I am sympathetic to the kind of the overarching argument that we have, you know, one way that elites are treated, oftentimes. Uh, and in a different way for, you know, everybody else. But, you know, this is this is a completely uh, novel situation that I pray will not be ever repeated again, where uh, a former sitting president carted off literally box loads of material that he had no right uh, to abscond with, essentially. And, uh, you know, look, if if they had simply done it the right way, he could have issued an executive order uh, the day before he left saying, I've got 15 boxes of material. I'm hereby declaring everything in them declassified. You know, just make your little list of of, uh, of boxes and what's in them and you're done. And this, this episode doesn't even happen. But he didn't do that. Uh, and that's exactly why he and a number of people that surround him are undoubtedly in a, a level of legal jeopardy now. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, if you wanted to, to get into the the, the legal nitty gritty, um, I think if you look at the uh, Hillary Clinton case, um, the facts are a little di- are different in a way that matters in terms of making a case in court that you can show beyond reasonable doubt. There are elements of knowingness in the um, and, or, you know, and or willfulness in in the relevant statutes. So um, the fact that it was the issue there essentially was you know, maintaining a server with a, for her private email account. And there was classified material that in most cases was sent by other people inappropriately to, uh, to that account. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to charge her with knowingly or deliberately removing it, I think it would have it would be more of an uphill battle, which is why people were focusing on the gross negligence provision of that. And there were, for various sort of constitutional reasons, just an issue of um, not that people you know, disagreed really that it was in fact pretty sloppy on her part um, to have permitted this stuff to go on for as long as it did. Um, but that in terms of making a case in court, that would have been an uphill battle. And then of course, just that, that um, it wasn't a question of retaining stuff that she was refusing to return, um, which, you know, seems to be more applicable here. So, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to distinguish, as they say, those, those two incidents in terms of, you know, what is, what is legally prosecutable. Uh, I think this is likely to be an easier case to prosecute um, if they decide to go that route. That said, you know, at some level, I, I, I don't really want to quibble that much because I think it clearly is true that in general, the powerful are, are given a uh, more of a pass 
than folks at lower levels who who might be uh, more more seriously punished for um, for actions like this. But um, so you know, there may be some fairness to that. In fact, but at the end of the day, is that a is is that really a defense? Well, I don't think it is. Julian Sanchez is a founding editor at Just Security, and Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 